This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps, and it is my great uh, pleasure to introduce our speaker for this evening, Dr. John Hildebrand. Uh, John is a professor of oceanography here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, University of California, San Diego. He's associated with the Marine Physical Laboratory at Scripps and is an adjunct professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. His research focuses on using sound to study marine mammals and the impact of anthropogenic sound in the ocean. Hildebrand's lab um, has developed a high-frequency acoustic recording package called HARP, and that's capable of long-term acoustic monitoring in remote ocean locations. These instruments are currently deployed in the Arctic, near Hawaii, off the coast of Washington and California, and in the Gulf of Mexico. HARPs have revealed new information on the behaviors and seasonal migration of whales and dolphins. Hildebrand's work also has documented that ocean noise levels from commercial shipping have increased dramatically over the past few decades, raising concerns about the potential impact of ocean noise on marine mammals. A native of San Diego, Hildebrand received his BS in physics and electrical, electrical engineering right here from UCSD, his PhD in applied physics from Stanford University, and he's held a research position at Scripps before joining the Scripps faculty. John is the author or co-author of more than 190 scientific publications. He has served on the Marine Mammal Commission's Board of Scientific Advisors and is a fellow of the Acoustical Society of America. He is also a member of the Society for Marine Mammalogy. John is the author or co-author, again, of more than 190 scientific publications. Please, jo please join me in welcoming John for his talk entitled, Do We, Do we Really Know Why Whales Sing? Well, th thank you all, as, as Harry uh, said. Thank you all for coming out on a, a chilly night in a, a challenging situation. So, um, so uh, the, you can see from my title, there's a certain level of skepticism, just even in the title. Do we really understand? And, um, and I, I came at this topic of, of whale sound in general, but especially whale song, um, really from the basis of making a lot of recordings in the ocean. And whale song, whale sounds were always part of those. And I, I honestly spent about a decade thinking of the whales as the noise and not the signal. But, but you know, here I am. And, um, and so I had kind of a baptism by fire on this topic uh, in the, the mid-1990s because uh, with my graduate student, Mark McDonald, we wrote a paper that very blithely just referred to both fin whale and blue whale sounds as song. And it went to this, this uh, guy named Bill Watkins, who, who I knew. I didn't know very well, but I, I knew him, and I'd, I'd spent some time with him. And at this point, he is the world's expert on whale sound and whale song. And, um, and so the, our paper went to him to review, and he wrote what I can only describe as a scathing review. <laughs> And uh, in fact, and signed it and called us up and we had long discussions. And, and, um, and I was remembering when I went to put this talk together, 
of his review, and I actually found it. And so these are more or less exactly what he said to me in terms of our way of referencing the sounds that we had recorded as song. And he said, you know, if you're going to call this song, there are several things you need to prove, and you've proved none of them. <laughs> so, so number one, it needs to be made by males. And, and me, being made by males is part of the idea that the song is a way of the male to advertise themselves to attract a mate. And, um, and it needs to be, you need to show that it's territorial, that the animal is using it in the confines of some sort of territory that it might be uh, protecting. You need to show that it's stereotyped, highly stereotyped, and it has a season that it's produced and a season that it's not produced, and overall that it's part of some sort of breeding complex, that it, it helps the animals to, uh, to mate. And, um, and he said, you haven't done any of these, you can't possibly publish this, and we did manage to overcome his his review by, by uh, modifying some of what we said. But, but this, was, this was very eye-opening to me, coming at this as a physicist, to, to see how important the word song was to this uh, you know, world-famous uh, marine mammal biologist. So he was coming at this from the perspective of birdsong. And those of you, are, are there any birders in the audience here? Yeah? So, so you know that a key uh, thing that you need to do if you're a birder is understand how to identify the species based on the song. It's not about seeing the animal much more. It's about hearing the animal and knowing how that uh, sound relates to the species, and especially when, in the context of song. And bird song, birds are nice, different than whales, because you can actually conduct experiments. You can have a bird in your laboratory and play a, a song to it and see if it picks up that song. It's none of the things, none of these things can we do with whales. And so the basic model that Bill Watkins was working off is that birds use, male birds mostly, use singing as a way to attract their mate. And they're singing in a way that the female can judge the fitness for breeding of that particular male. Is this male healthy? Is it strong? Is, is it the bird that I should mate with? And, um, and part of that is the stereotyped nature of, this, of the bird song. It turns out you can do experiments that they are more or less imprinted at a young age and don't, don't modify that song very much. There's a period where they'll pick up a song and then that's their song for life. And it's also used as a way of of a territorial defense. If there's a male singer and another male comes into his territory, they can battle it out with song, but, it, but it's also a warning for this other male not to encroach on, on that territory. Now, I'm going to, with some risk here, I'm going to play a uh, video, just because it's such a wonderful video, let's see if I can do this, that I saw in the uh, New York Times. And this video is about... Uh, uh, zebra finches, and here's a male zebra finch on, the, on, the, on this side, and here's a juvenile male zebra finch uh, that we're about to witness uh, the, what it takes to become socialized. <laughs>
So there's the father <laughs> teaching the offspring the song. And you can see it's, it's pretty important. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go now to the world of the whales. And uh, in this case, when I say whales, what I mean are the baleen whales, the mysticetes. And there are these three uh, genuses of baleen whales. And I'm focusing on the baleen whales because the toothed whales largely do not make sounds that are characterized as song. They make lots of different sounds. They, make, they echolocate. They have signature whistles. They do not sing. Baleen whales, and we'll talk about this, but they're the ones that are famous for singing. So there are these three uh, genuses. They're the, the, uh, the right whales and the bowheads are the belenids. There are the gray whales that are the asterisids, and there are the blue fin, say, humpback, brutus, and minke whales that are bel the belenopterids. And the, this division, it largely has to do with how they feed. The, the right whales and uh, bowhead whales feed at the surface by moving along at the surface and passing water through their baleen. The gray whale feeds at the bottom, mostly by scooping up sediment and passing that through a, a sort of coarser set of baleen. And the belenopterids or roll crawls feed in the water column by lunging and engulfing krill or fish and then squeezing the water out and keeping their prey. Now, all of these baleen whales make very long seasonal migrations. They're at low latitude to breed and they're at high latitude to feed. And this is largely because the waters are so much more productive at the high latitudes. So, so I'm going to start out. We're going to step down through these species, and I'm just going to play a little snippet of the sounds that we have for, for each of them. So, so the right whale, it's, it's an interesting animal because it's, it's called the right whale because it's the right whale to harpoon. <laughs> and, it, uh, and it is the right whale to harpoon because if you, even if you take all the air out of its lungs, it'll still float. And so it was one of the only animals that they could deal with back in the early days of, of commercial whaling. And so there are on order of 300 right whales in the North Atlantic. There are on order of about 30 right whales in the North Pacific. So this is the most endangered uh, baleen whale. But, but what we record, I'm going to play this, but um, it's, it's a series of these little upsweeps. And, and there are a few other sounds that right whales make, but this is, this is their repertoire. And it is categorically not song. In fact, when you look at the animals that are producing it, these, uh, you can see the difference in the frequency content and the slope of these pulses. There's one animal that's making these two pulses, and a separate animal is making those. It's a, what's called a call-counter-call. It's basically a way of the animals keeping track of each other, and they often use it as a way of, of getting together, but, but it's categorically not song. Um, now, closely related to the right whales are the bowheads, and bowheads have the same feeding strategy, it's just they're up right in the ice, in the high Arctic. And as they, they do a seasonal migration from slightly lower latitude, like the Bering Sea, up into the Arctic, 
And this is an example of the kind of sounds they make on that, what's a spring migration. This is song, and it's song because you can see their repeated phrases, and, and, it re, and it goes on for hours and hours, and so this fits every definition of song. So here we have two closely related species. One of them sings and one of them doesn't, right? Now, let's go to the gray whale. This is probably the animal that you've seen the most if you live here. There's a great opportunity just to go offshore and watch almost the entire population pass by our front door. This particular recording is made in the breeding lagoons uh, at San Ignacio in, in Mexico. Sounds kind of like a bongo drum. There's snapping shrimp in the background. Okay, so that's an interesting sound. It turns out it's almost perfectly designed to propagate in the shallow water where these animals live in terms of the frequencies and this kind of impulsive knockingness of it. But it's not done in regular patterns, and it's not song. And, and they have a few other sounds, but we've never heard them produce them in this stereotype fashion. So it, they, as far as we know, they don't sing. Now, this is uh, the blue whale, and again, we have a great opportunity to see these animals. They'll appear offshore here in the summer, um, and this is one piece of a two-part uh, song I'll play. So I, I had to frequency shift that. I apologize. It, it pushed it up. It's actually a quite low, sort of powerful frequency, but I had to push it up just because speakers never do it justice. But this particular song is, uh, is imaginatively labeled the A part, which I just played for you, which is this pulsy part. And then there's a gap. And then there's a long, very powerful tonal part. And the upper panel shows where, in sequence, you get an A, B, A, B, A, B, and they'll do this hours on end with only slight uh, gaps occasionally to come to the surface and breathe. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. So this is song, and we'll, we'll also show how their regional dialects of blue whale uh, song. Fin whales are the blue whales, it turns out, are the largest animals that ever lived, larger than all the dinosaurs. Fin whales are the second largest animal that ever lived. They also will be here, but to get to them in your whale watching boat, it's, it's not that common because they're, they're a little bit further offshore. To a fin whale, everything is about rhythm. They make short pulses, but the pattern of their pulses is, is everything. And this particular song is from the Gulf of California. And in the Gulf of California, as, as long as we've been recording, they do these triplets. There are a bit different patterns, but it's always a triplet of pulses.
Now I came clean on the slide that I, that's sped up five times. Again, it's a low frequency, very powerful uh, sound, but it's, it's produced in these, in these patterns. Minke whales are the smallest of the baleen whales, and um, there's a minke whale subspecies in the Pacific and a subspecies in the Atlantic. Um, it's been a long time since they were together. This is the, the sound of the uh, Pacific animal. The Navy labeled this the Boeing. It's produced in the spring. It's produced only at low latitude, and pretty much it fits the characteristic of a song. But the amazing thing is, if you go to the Atlantic, the very closely related animal, this is what it sounds like. They call those thump trains. It's just a fast series of pulses. Um, nothing looks nothing like the Boeing and a very closely related species. Okay, so this is everybody's favorite uh, whale singer. And I'm gonna play just a little uh, snippet. Um, So there's a way of categorizing this that tells you about the pattern of the repeat of the song. And generally, these songs will go on for 10 to 15 minutes before the, the sound repeats. And it turns out uh, with humpbacks, there's a novelty aspect to the song that, that's really important. They're always modifying it. And it's, it's fairly complicated to start with, but... In a given population, all the animals will sing the same song, but then it'll evolve, and they'll all evolve together. And, um, and, and let me just play a slightly longer piece of this same song just for you to get a sense of kind of the, the rhythm of it and how we respond to it as if it were music um, because it has this, this sort of pattern. Okay, now we're off my little chart here. So maybe someday we'll have a school and we can teach our kids humpback. You know, I, I did manage to get a three-minute recording of a humpback on the, one of the talking trees. If you ever, anybody know what the talking trees are at UCSD? Yeah, so you'll randomly walk by there, and it'll be uh, playing humpback. So, um, so w w the story of the humpback whale song. I, I have to talk about Roger Payne, and Roger is probably the most notable uh, marine mammal biologist focused on whale song who's, who's still with us at this point. And, um, and I met Roger. He, I was sitting at my office one day uh, minding my business, and the phone rang. And I, I didn't know him at the time. And he said, oh, this is 
Roger Payne, and I thought, oh, this is like a, a call from God, you know, and, and he, he uh, asked me for a favor, but, which I was very happy to do, but, um, and then at the time, here's Roger, um, he had uh, purchased a sailboat, and his goal was to take the sailboat and sail it around the world and record humpbacks, but all kinds of marine mammals on this, this voyage around the world, and this is his his helper, Ian Kerr, who's, who's still uh, trading in sailboats and, and dreams like this. Roger is more or less retired, but, but Roger is famous uh, in terms of the public for this album called Songs of the Humpback Whale, which maybe some of you got it in the 60s. My parents did not buy it. I had to go to the next door neighbor's house to listen to it, which was a bitter disappointment, but I, I remember loving uh, listening to it as a kid. So now I'm going to just segue to uh, let Roger talk to you in his own words because um, he only Roger can can do this um, now I'm gonna play this is a video that we made of Roger Payne I've been studying humpback whales now for ooh, 35 years something like that and when I got started, I'd never seen a whale, and my very first trip to see a whale was to Bermuda, where a friend of mine had told me there was this species of whale called a humpback. And when I got there, I heard their extraordinary sounds, the beautiful noises which they make. And I'm a musician, not a professional, just an amateur, but I thought these sounds might get people interested enough in whales so that they could have some effect on their lives, because at the time, whales were being killed to the tune of about 33,000 whales a year. At the same time, it was in the late 60s, people were interested and hopeful about the future and the environment, and the Save the Whales movement began. And I think there was a contribution to it from the fact that when people could hear these beautiful sounds, it became a lot harder to think of turning these animals into lipstick and shoe polish and cat food and all the things which they were being turned into at that time. He goes on. The song of a humpback whale is divided into several natural sort of groupings of sound. The whole thing, before it repeats itself, is called a song. Then there are about anywhere between two and nine themes that come in. And each theme is divided into anywhere up to 15 or 20 different repetitions of a phrase. The songs that humpback whales sing are different from bird songs in that they're usually quite long. They're on an average of somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes. The longest ones are half an hour. These long songs are also sung without any break between songs. They make a continual river of sound that can go on for as long as, well, I've heard them go on 36 hours without stopping. Well, we know that if they're making these sounds with air, and they seem to be, they've got to breathe somewhere. And you discover, if you watch the whale it's singing very, very carefully, you discover that it catches breaths at the surface in such a way as to not interrupt the performance of the song. In other words, it seems to be a conscious performance. He's wonderful. Um, so, let's see. Now, I'm going to go back and let's look at uh, what Roger did in the, in the 70s. And, and that is to come up with this way of, of categorizing the song. And so let's say the top line is there are many hours of recordings. And he'll divide those recordings in to a cycle where the song has come back around and, and 
made a repeat. So in this case, it's a 12-minute repetition. So within that, there are six themes that he's uh, outlined. And within those themes, there are phrases. And then within those phrases, there are units or individual notes. And so this was very much of a breakthrough when he published it, that, that you could see this structure in the, the, the songs of the humpback whale. And then, of course, behind every great man, there's an even greater woman. <laughs> and his lovely wife, Katie, took this forward and took it to the new level of seeing how the songs evolved over time. They would go back to the same place about the same time of year. You can see this is you know, five consecutive years. And they've taken the same phrase and shown you how it starts out. There are two little tones and then a modulated note and then a tiny little note at the end. And the next year, those two tones break into four and the modulation changes a little bit and lengthens. And the next year, it's, it's even more elaborated and the, the little note turns into four and now it's into six little notes. And, you know, it just, just goes on every year. And so the, the model is that during the uh, breeding season, when the whales are singing, they're listening and modifying the song in these, you know, reasonably subtle but, but uh, distinct ways. Now, um, so that's the model. And then along comes Jim Darling. And Jim Darling got his Ph.D. at, uh, at Santa Cruz some time ago and um, devoted his life, more or less, to spending every breeding season on the Hawaii humpback breeding ground. And, um, and so he has a nonprofit called Whale Trust, but he has really dedicated his life to figuring this out. And, um, and we put together an exhibit, maybe some of you have seen it, that's called uh, Voices in the Sea. In fact, it used to be sitting in the back of the room here. Um, and um, I sent a graduate student out to, um, to interview Jim. My name is Jim Darling. I'm a biologist. I work for Whale Trust, which is a research organization on Maui. Uh, I've studied humpback whales and especially singers for 30 years. For some years, we've known about the structure of the humpback whale song. These are sequences of sounds which are repeated over and over again, yet they progressively change or evolve as they're being sung, and all the singers in a population sing the same version at any one time. For years, it's been speculation that singers sing to attract a female. We've never seen them. All the evidence we have is that this is an interaction or a signal between males. And the most common interaction we see is when a singer is joined by another adult male. When that happens, the singing stops. There's usually a very brief interaction and the two whales split heading in different directions. If you follow either one of those animals, very often it will move several miles and join yet another singer and the same interaction occurs. Occasionally they stay together and the pair or even a trio, if another whale joins, will swim until they join a group which includes a female. This may be a, a cow-calf and escort or a competitive group. So there appears to be this series of interactions between males on the breeding ground, this sort of network. Where we're at now is taking all the clues we have and beginning to ask the question of why do they sing? And we have a, a ways to go with that question. So he is just absolutely, in the most casual way, blown the whole bird song hypothesis out of the water, right? Whale song is about male-to-male -male interaction. 
So, uh, so my graduate student, uh, I sent him out to get this thinking, okay, you know, Jim's just going to back up the standard model. And I, I knew that he had some different ideas, but, uh, but this, is, this just absolutely changes everything. And, and here we're talking about a guy who has, ab who has dedicated his life to this one question and, and watched whales and never seen a male humpback singing and have that be something that attracts a female. Never. So, um, and, and there is a, there's a guy, um, Sal Sergio is a, another humpback whale researcher. I went to lunch one time with, with he and Jim, and it was quite entertaining to watch them argue <laughs> over this point. Um, so, um, so now you can see that um, my, uh, my work is more focused on uh, blue whales and, and fin whales. And for, for some time, you know, starting back in the era where we're interacting with, with uh, Watkins, we have recordings of, of blue whales. And at a certain point, <clears throat> we, we realized that if you look at, I will use the word song, even though Watkins up there is unhappy with me, but that the blue whale song could be divided in a, into a geography, into a global geography. And the numbers show different styles of singing. And what we have here on the West Coast, of course, we use number one, because it was the first one we studied. And the whales that we encounter here off of San Diego go from the Costa Rica offshore Central America area up into the Gulf of Alaska. But they're very sort of coastal whales. If you go out into deep water, there's a totally different song and probably a different population. And and we would like to think that the song is, if it is related to breeding, it's a way that one population of whales could recognize that that's the whale they want to breed with or not breed with. But, but again, you know, if we follow Jim, that's not necessarily the case. So one of the uh, mysteries that came upon us in terms of, of uh, blue whale song is... We, um, we have a lot of recordings, and we have to train computers to find these recordings. And so here's the, the song that we're trying to find. There's this pulsed part that I played for you, and then there's this tone. And what we did was we trained our computer to look exactly for the frequency of this third harmonic of the B call. And so we would have to measure very carefully what's that frequency. And when we did that back in the kind of 90s, Every year, we'd have to move it down a little bit. It wouldn't be the same. And so somewhere kind of about the year 2000, as we'd been doing this for you know, nearly a decade, we decided to go back and find all of the old recordings we can. And we dug into the archives of the Navy. They were very nice to let us dig into old recordings again offshore here. And we could go back as far as 1964. And at that time, the frequency of this call is something like, uh, you know, 30% higher than it is, you know, where, where we're recording it now. Now, that's kept going, and instead of a nice linear downward shift, it's actually kind of turned a little bit, and this, this has to be the case, because if it keeps going down forever, I mean, eventually it gets to zero, and, you know, the world ends or something. So, um, so we, we published a theory as to why this might be, and as far as I can tell, only my co-authors believe the theory. But, um, but the theory basically says that when we first encountered a blue whale song in the 60s, 
the whales were incredibly depleted. This is the, the maximum you know, impact of commercial whaling. And since that time, there's been a recovery of the population. And we hypothesize that this shift in frequency is related to that recovery in terms of density. Now, this is where there's that cartoon where the guy's doing a proof and he says a miracle happens. So, so the miracle is that blue whales prefer, for whatever reason, to have a low frequency song. And the, their limitation for producing a low frequency song is how much air they have in their lungs. But they also want a certain number of animals to hear their song. And in this case, I've drawn my circle to have six animals hear it. But you can get away with a lower frequency uh, song with a fixed amount of air as the density of animals go up. So I, I believe this is monitoring the recovery of blue whales. If I had a, a population of whale biologists out there, they'd all start screaming at me. But you know that, that is what it is. Uh, there were various people around the planet that decided to show that we were wrong. And there's a guy named Gavrilov in Australia who had a really nice time series. And what he discovered is that indeed we were correct that the, the, this particular song is shifting down in frequency as well. But he found another twist, which is that each uh, singing season, it starts out at a high pitch, goes down to a low pitch, and then bounces back up. And this happens every year. It's like a stair step as you go down. So uh, one way to try to figure out what's going on with blue whale uh, song is to actually attach a little recorder onto them. And this is a picture of my uh, student, Mark McDonald, about to attach a little suction cup recorder onto the side of a blue whale. And in fact, if you look carefully, that's uh, La Jolla in the background there. And uh, this, that's the picture from, but the data themselves are from off of uh, uh, Palos Verdes. So we attach the recorder. Whale is going down and, and foraging. All of this bumpiness at the bottom is the whale making a lunge to engulf the, the prey, which are a krill at the bottom. And as the sun goes down, the whale is coming up towards the surface, and eventually it stops foraging. And you see this series of kind of shallow dives near the surface during most of the nighttime. Well, if you look into those, the color dots are where the animal is singing. So, so it doesn't sing in the day when it's feeding, and it sings at night when it should be resting. This is also a, a don't sing with your mouth full story. <laughs> so if you look, these bits at the top are where the animal is coming up and taking multiple breaths. And down below, it goes down to a certain depth, and then it produces some number of, of, of uh, song calls. And there's a real consistency <clears throat> in the depth that it, that it dives. And, and at first, we kind of scratched our head. Why, why would it always go to that depth? And it turns out 25 meters is the depth. And if you look at the frequency, the fundamental frequency of the song, which is 15 hertz, you realize that that has, that has an acoustic wavelength of 100 meters. Now, 100 meters is interesting because this 25 meters is a quarter of that 100. And if the whale makes a sound, and then the sound goes up to the surface and bounces off the surface, it turns out the surface flips the, the sound over. It's a phase reversing surface. When the sound comes back down and the whale hears it, it constructively interferes with the outgoing sound. So this is a place where the whale can sit, and the sound 
is the most powerful even to its own ears, but it's also the most powerful in terms of projecting the sound. So, um, so it'd be nice to know if these depths had, have changed, but you know, we only have a limited amount of tag data. Now, when we dig into the details of these dives where it's making calls, you can see there are a series of dives here where it took a full set of breaths and then it went down you know, for a few minutes and did four calls and then came back up. So here it took seven breaths and five breaths and four breaths. But there's this strange period where it's making its requisite four calls and then it makes a fifth call on the way to the surface and then it takes a single breath and makes two more calls, not very deep, and then goes up and takes its breath. And it does this, as, as Roger said, in a way to not interrupt the cadence of the song. So what it's doing is it's trying to mask the fact that it had to take a breath while it's singing. And we wondered if this had any impact on the amplitude. These are the, the first call that it makes after those single breaths. Um, and it's something like five or six dBs lower amplitude. So it's struggling to produce, after it's one breath, it's actually struggling to produce that, that uh, one call. But it's trying to act as if I am such a powerful whale that I can make eight sounds where you can only make four, right? <laughs> but it's, it's cheating. Now, the other thing, back to uh, Bill Watkins' world, is there a season? And so we have information on this because we go out with every Kel Coffee cruise and we do both visuals and acoustic detection of whales. And the song you can see in these panels is primarily in the summer and the fall. It's like two or three times more likely to be singing in the summer and the fall. So. Um, Here's what we know about blue whale song. Um, we do know it's made by males, by the way. I didn't say that, but every wh singing whale that we've biopsied turns out to be a male. That's absolutely clear now. But um, it has this, and it's stereotyped, but it has a long-term trend for lower frequency that honestly we don't understand. And it's made in a way to be as powerful as possible, both in terms of the way it, it, the absolute sound level it's projecting and where it produces it. And they attempt to mask the fact that they're trying to breathe as they're making it. It's not coincident with foraging. Um, and its season peaks after the main season where the whales are here. So there is a suggestion that the song could be part of mating. In other words, there's a season where they're foraging and there's a season where they're probably pairing up. But, but it's not clear. There's some complexity here. And, and I should also mention that whenever we've looked at blue whales singing, they tend to be moving. Now, let's talk about fin whales. And here's a nice picture of a fin whale. And it's a fin whale because it has this very elongate fin. Um, and maybe, as I mentioned before, fin whales are basically drummers. It's all about the, the beat, the pattern. And this is a long song sequence taken from Southern California where they produce what are called doublets. So the doublets are, there's an interval between these two notes and then a longer interval and two more notes. So this is more or less a, a doublet song. And what we find is in Southern California, there can be 
sh uh, long doublets and short doublets. Short being that the interval between the, the doublet pairs is, is about equal to the interval between the notes themselves. And then a long doublet is there are two quick notes and then the long interval between. So these are the two styles that we see in Southern California. In the Gulf of California, as I played before, here's the one I played before, it's a triplet and then a gap. Now, this is a two notes and a little gap, and then there's a third of the triplet, and then two notes and a little gap. So it's either a short triplet or a long triplet. Okay, now, that all sounds complicated, and it only gets more complicated because when we first start having good records of fin whale song off Southern California, so here is uh, 2001, what we see is a long doublet, but the long doublet changes its, its timing throughout the season, and then the next singing season, it drops back down and then lengthens. Very reminiscent of Gavriloff and the Antarctic uh, blue whales. Now look at these green ones. Those are a long triplet. So here we have a visitor from the Gulf of California. These are our, our Mexican uh, you know, colleagues have come up to, to sing. So a revolution happens. This is a short doublet. By 2007, it is completely dominated by a short-lived doublet. There are a few long doublets, but not many. And here's our Gulf of California guy. He's come back. But so did the population of fin whales overturn so that there was a certain style of singing by a certain group of animals, those animals left, and there's a new group of animals? Or did the animals change their song? Either of these doesn't make sense in terms of the bird model, right? If this is a territory and they're defending their territory and they have a song imprinted from day one, they're not going to change. So, so some kind of revolution took place here, right? I mean, it, it took us decades to figure it out, but there was a revolution in the fin whale world offshore of Southern California, and we do not know why. Um, I had a graduate student work on tracking fin whales, and the color here, this is a map, and the color here is time, and there's, I don't know, this is an hour or something of, of time, and the whale starts out, and it's moving, but it's not moving very fast. It's kind of a meandering move, and we always find this when we track them. They're moving, they're not stationary, but they're not going anywhere very fast. So is this defending a territory? It may be a moving territory. Their seasonality is primarily in the fall and the winter. Uh, if you look at the, the dots here, these two, and much less in the summer and spring. So it's, it's seasonal, but it's shifted one season from the blue whales. Now, just for completeness, I want to show you, and you probably didn't even know, that humpbacks sing right offshore here. Right? There are plenty of singing humpbacks. They sing in the winter when it's not that fun to be out there in the spring. They do not sing in the summer and the fall when you are likely to, to take your whale watching trip. So again, there's a season, but it's shifted. So here's the result that three whales, you'd think that they're very similar. Blue whales in the summer and fall, fin whales in the fall and winter, and humpbacks in the winter and spring. They, they shift their singing season. So, so I want to loop back around to 
uh, pay my respects to Bill Watkins. And so, and I, I only wish I could have done this, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, where I could send it to him and have a dialogue. But, but he definitely put me down on this road. And he asked me these questions, and I'm still trying to answer them. But, but one of the questions is the gender. And everywhere we've been able to go out, so I, I've shown you all these uh, baleen whales. Everywhere we've gone out and learned their gender, indeed it is males. So, so that's, that's a good sign. I can put one check mark on that. Territory. Well, the bowheads move, the blue whales move, the fin whales move. And even the humpbacks, there is a breeding area. But if you look at the way that, that Jim Darling described that, it's not just a humpback sitting there. It's all this interaction between the males as they move around. So yes, it's stationary, but it's, I would call that kind of semi-stationary. Um, stereotyped. Well, right whales, as far as we know, don't even have nothing stereotyped. Neither do gray whales. Say whales, we're still arguing about what kind of sounds these make at all. There's a roar call. So some of the whales, if it's super important, I don't understand why they don't do it. But there are at least these three that there are no evidence that they're singing. Bowheads and humpbacks do very complicated song, but it changes. Fin whales and blue whales do pretty simple song, but we can have total reversals in the, in the style, the, what we've seen with fin whales, or long, very, you know, decadal kind of variations like what we see with blue whales. There's a season, but they don't agree at all on what that season is. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Is it for mating? I, the best I can put is a maybe next to the humpbacks. Um, and, uh, and these, the best I can do is put a lot of question marks, although we would like to think that it is related to mating. So, um, so what we know, we know it's produced by males, but if we listen to Jim, it's not about males impressing females. It's about, it's about your buddies. It's about how you interact with other males. Um, that's a hard story to tell, by the way, when I sent the student out to get a sound bite that we were going to put on the one-minute clip on the uh, video you know, here in the aquarium. So Jim's, none of Jim's footage made it on the final cut because <laughs> it's too hard to explain. Um, moving, but it's powerful and optimized for, to be heard a long distance. Stereotyped, but a lot of variation. Seasonal, but a lot of different seasons associated with mating, maybe. Okay, Bill, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and I'd like to say that I very much appreciate all the help that I've gotten over the years from all the people in my lab, and this is a long list of, of people, some of whom are in the audience, and, and I thank you all for coming out tonight. So, yeah. Yes, so the question is, um, do the feeding habits of the whales, you know, is that the important uh, criteria? And, and, I mean, clearly that's important to their lifestyle and where they spend their time. So, for instance, bowhead whales and right whales, you don't see them dive very much. They're, they're very buoyant. It's hard for them. They have to work to stay down, and then they just pop back up to the surface. So, but the, those two whales, as similar as they, as similar as they are, one of them is clearly putting a lot of emphasis on singing, the bowhead, 
And the other one, we can't find any song at all. So that's part of the mystery is why whales with very similar, you know, we, we would say, you know, foraging, you know, in habitat choices do such, make such different choices in terms of the sound. Yeah, so the question is, um, would the depth, I assume the depth at which they sing, and the note that they're chosen to sing at that depth have to do with the age of the whale. And um, as far as we know, well, for blue whales, we have quite a number of tags. We have about 200 tags. I've shown you one, but they all sing in a pretty narrow depth range. And I think that has to do with just the physics of it, you know, that, that they're using this bounce off the surface. Um, it is an important question when uh, we published the paper on the changing um, pitch. Some people said, oh, that's just the whales recovering from whaling because back in the day, the big whales were removed and the young whales then grew and got bigger. Well, it turns out um, whales, like people, they uh, mature in length sometime in their teens, like 14, 15 years. And we're showing a pattern here that goes back for 50 years. So the size distribution of the whales at this point is probably stable. It might not have been right after whaling, but these whales have not been subject to commercial whaling for a long time. So I think it's a stable size population. So, so I, when we tried to answer that criticism, I would say it it's probably doesn't explain that pattern. Yeah, so the question is, um, is there an anatomical reason why Males sing and females don't. And, um, and one thing that you might think about is that by uh, singing and broadcasting this powerful sound, you're exposing yourself to a certain level of risk, right? And even, even uh, baleen whales have enemies. They will be hunted by killer whales, right? So if the male absolutely needs to sing as part of a breeding complex, He'll take that chance, you know, better to be successful at breeding, you know, even if there's a chance he'll be eaten, than, than never be successful at breeding at all. I mean, you, you can see how males would relate to that. Well, <laughs> females don't have to take that chance, right? So, so they don't have to... Well, I would think what, they make other sounds, but they don't do these long, sustained uh, songs. The call-counter-call that I uh, showed you in the beginning, they definitely do that. That's a really good question. So the question has to do with the hemispheric balance of whales. And in the model I described, which is you know, correct, that whales breed at low latitude where the water's warm, and they feed at higher latitude where the waters are more productive. The Southern Ocean, you know, if you go to the southern part of the planet, there's an ocean that rings the, the whole globe. It's incredibly productive. And in fact, that is, there were more, in, before commercial whaling you know, damaged that ecosystem, there are by far more whales in the Southern Ocean than anywhere else. Estimates were that there were something like uh, at, at least a couple hundred thousand blue whales just in the Southern Ocean. So, so the pattern is, if you think about it, you know, because the seasons are, are different, if it's, let's say it's the winter in the north and the summer in the south, the southern hemisphere whales are down here feeding while the northern ones are breeding, and then they do this shift where the southern ones come up 
toward the equator to breed, and the northern ones go up to the pole to feed. So they do this kind of uh, you know, dance in phase. And if you, there are, are places where you could sit near the equator where you can hear the northern whales at one season, and then you hear the southern whales at the other season. Oh, ship traffic. Okay, so two parts. Okay, number one, and and this is a common uh, comment. It's 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 actually insightful what you said. So the comment is that lower frequency, uh, there will be less attenuation, so the sound will propagate further, right? Not uh, shorter, as my my cartoon uh, suggested. So let me deal with that first, and we'll come back to ships. Okay. So it turns out that at these frequencies of a, of a few tens of hertz, the attenuation of these sounds is 0.001 dB per kilometer. It's called zero. So that shift, even though it's counterintuitive, it makes no difference in, in the absorption of the sound. Right? It's all about uh, the frequency requiring, low frequencies require more air. And you can make a, uh, a more intense sound at, at higher pitch, um, which if you've ever had kids screaming in the backseat of your car, you know exactly. You know, I mean, even a small set of lungs at high pitch can be incredibly uh, loud. Second part is uh, ships. So um, there are a growing number of ships. And so over the time frame we're talking about, the sound level in the ocean has increased somewhere between 20, 10, 10 and 20 dBs, which is a serious number. So uh, the question is, how is that impacting this you know, frequency shift? And, and I would maintain that um, the, the whales, the, the ship noise is at low frequency. And they're shifting lower in frequency. So they're shifting into a regime where there's more noise, not less noise. So if they were shifting away from the shift noise, you could say, okay, they're just trying to escape the shift noise. But instead, they're doing it despite the shift noise. They're overcoming that. And it could be if there were no ships, they'd shift even more. But it, it's, it's counterintuitive to, to the way that they would shift if they were trying to avoid ships. Yeah. Yes, so the, so the question is, um, even for humpbacks, if the, if the sounds are propagating long distance, you know, wh- why is all the action in close, right? And, and so it, it, is an, it, it is an interesting question because, um, and, and I've thought about this for blue whales. You can hear the sound of a blue whale for hundreds of kilometers, right? And, and it's odd that the whale would care about somebody hearing it 100 kilometers away because, you know, it's a long way to swim. It's not likely that... A whale 100 kilometers away is going to hear it and say, oh, yeah, that's Joe. I've got to swim over. And, you know. So, so we, the, that's, that's part of the paradox. And it, it could be that the amplitude of the sound is part of what makes it, uh, it, it's part of the function. It has to be powerful. Now, if I were following the standard model, I would say it has to be powerful to demonstrate that I'm a big, healthy whale and that you know, you other whale want to breed with me, right? But Jim would say it has to be powerful to convince the other males that I'm someone to cooperate with or maybe 
be competitive with, right? In other words, that the power of the sound isn't about propagating long distance. It's about convincing the other whales that you have some characteristic that, that you want to project. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.